Take your Bible, open it to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 13 in chapter 1. And the message is, into the wilderness. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful group that's come together on this Sunday morning. Thank you for the beautiful day. Thank you that we uh, had a chance to celebrate the birth of the Messiah with family and friends. And hopefully uh, everybody had a wonderful Christmas celebration. And now, Lord, as we look to a new year, we look to a new year with anticipation. We want to do a little bit of a reflection, but we want to charge into 2016 busy about your business. And so we just want to pray that you'll use this time together to shape our hearts to be more like you, to... Uh, Take off the things that so easily entangle us, Lord, the sin that weighs us down. And let us run this race with endurance as we fix our eyes, or maybe refix our eyes, on the author and perfecter of our faith, which is Jesus Christ. We bow before you, Lord, right now. We know your word is profitable, so open our ears and our hearts so that it might shape us. Let us be good soil, let us break up the fallow ground so that we can receive the implanted word which is able to save our souls but it's also able to perfect us and make us uh, vessels of honor fit for the master's use. And so we just pray that you'd move in a mighty way in our lives and our hearts this morning in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's do this together. We're going to read the whole section and we'll come back and break it down. Mark 1 verse 4. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, Mark 1.5. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I. I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And it came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening, the Spirit and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts. And the angels were ministering to him. May God write his word upon our hearts. Now as we look at uh, this particular text, we can see a prominent word emerge from the page. And this word is wilderness. And it's a word that does not appear after this section again in the Gospel of Mark. You'll notice the word wilderness is in verse 3. It speaks prophetically of John's ministry, which we looked at in a previous message. He was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And he was saying, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Notice he, was, he appeared in the wilderness, verse 4, preaching a baptism of repentance. Now if you go down to verse 12, those two scriptures apply to John. Now these two apply to Jesus. Immediately the the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. So into the wilderness is the title of this message, and I want to talk to you about this concept of the wilderness. For the people of Israel, 
The wilderness did not bring up fond memories. Their wandering after they uh, emerged from Egypt by the powerful hand of God was called the wilderness wanderings. And it was not a pleasant memory. In fact, all of them were laid low in the wilderness in that generation except two men. And that was Joshua, you remember, and Caleb. And the difference between those two men and everybody else, and scholars believe that probably more than a million Israelites left Egyptian bondage. Only two men had faith to believe in the promises of God. And they wandered in the desert for 40 years, and they were laid low in the desert. And Psalm 78 says these words. Write this down just for your notes. This is verses 40 through 42. It says, How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness, and grieved him in the desert. And again and again they tempted God, and they pained the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the adversary. Psalm 78, 40 through 42. And so to, to think of the wilderness for a person who's an Israelite is a negative connotation. In fact, I'm going to take you to some passages in a moment where we'll look at the book of Exodus, and, and it was not a pleasant time. It was not a good time. But now in Mark, all of a sudden, there are two incredible characters that emerge in the wilderness. One is John. He's the way shower. He prepares the way of the Lord. And then the second is Jesus. And you have to ask a, a question, and it's this. Why are they in the wilderness? Why is this, does this word continue to show up in these passages. When David was uh, writing in his time in the wilderness, he was running from Saul. He wrote Psalm 63 when he was in the wilderness of Judah and he said these words, O God, you are my God, I shall seek thee earnestly. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have beheld you in your sanctuary to see your power and your glory. David experienced the dryness of the wilderness. He was on the run from Saul. And it was there that God did a lot of shaping in David's life. And, you know, many of us can relate to a wilderness experience. The word wilderness in Hebrew is midbar, M-I-D-B-A-R. And it speaks of an open place. It can speak of a pasture. If you look at Hebrew lexicons of the word, it speaks of a wide open place. But but the root word is davar, and the root word of wilderness is the word. In fact, this is kind of the concept. It can speak of an open pasture place or place, but it also, in a secondary sense, speaks of the mouth. And the wilderness, this is a very important concept, is the place of the word. It's the place where God shaped prophets. It's the place that he led Israel out into after they left Egyptian bondage. We should ask some questions about that. Let's turn to the book of Exodus, and we'll look at a few passages in relate, related to the wilderness. Exodus chapter 3 is the first uh, place we will look. But let's ask a question. I think I'd be asking this question if I was among the children of Israel why this emphasis on the wilderness? We've been in Egyptian bondage. We've been in slavery for 400 years. Why does he want to lead us into the wilderness now? Hasn't it already been a time of wilderness? But for the people of Israel, they had been in Egypt and they had been dominated by the taskmaster and they had been under the reign of Pharaoh. And he was influencing them, whether they liked it or not. Egypt was seeping into their hearts. 
Egypt in the Bible is a type, a picture of the world. Pharaoh is a type, a picture of Satan. And so God broke the bonds and he, he led them out with 10 mighty plagues on Egypt. The last of them was the plague of the firstborn. Uh, being being killed and you had to have the blood of the lamb on your doorpost and on the lentil and all of that was a message and out they went and they were rejoicing. I mean, man, it had been a long time. This was the hope and the dreams of so many people. So many people prayed for deliverance. You know, we can think of our own lives. We came out of the world. We came out from under the reign of Satan. But then sometimes our Christian life steers us into the wilderness. And we ask, why? Because the wilderness is the place of the word. It's a place where God strips everything away and tries to teach you that all you really need is him. And every Christian, I've got a newsflash for you. This is maybe, you know, to look back on, this may be for later. Some of you may be there right now. Every Christian is going to go through a wilderness experience. In fact, in many ways, we are in the wilderness right now, waiting to go into the promised land, and it is here that God shapes us, and he even tests us. So let's look at what happened to the children of Israel, Exodus 3, second book of your Bible, verse 1. Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, Exodus 3, 1, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness. He came to Horeb, the mountain of God, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. Moses' call came in the wilderness. Go to Exodus 4, verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, go to meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and he met him, they were brothers, at the mountain of God, and he kissed him. Exodus 4, 28. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him. And all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Go to Exodus 5, look at verse 1. And afterward Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me. Where? In the wilderness. Now skip all the way ahead to Exodus 13. Look at verse 18. Now we know that Pharaoh was very stubborn. He did not want to let the people go. He hardened his heart. Then God hardened his heart. And God was doing miracles and judging uh, Egypt and the Pharaoh. Look at verse 18, chapter 13. Hence God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. And the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God shall surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. Then they sent out from they set out from Sukkoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. So before God closed the sea on Pharaoh's army, the people of Israel accused Moses, Exodus 14, 11 and 12, take a peek at that with me, of bringing them out to the wilderness to die. They said to Moses, is it because there was not enough graves in Egypt that you have taken us away, 14, 11, to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way? bringing us out of Egypt. It doesn't take long, does it? You get out of Egyptian slavery, you know, you've been in the car for a couple of hours, and would you bring us out here to die? Moses had to be thinking already, oh, I'm not sure I should have taken this job. 
I tried to tell you, Lord, get somebody else, right? And so is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. What a bunch of whiners. And so God parted the sea with, uh, the Bible says picturesquely, with the blast of his nostrils. God just went, bam! One of my favorite moments in baseball games is when an athlete gets out of the batter's box and then just in front of national television, just bam! Well, God just parts the sea with a blast of his nostrils. It's just awesome. So he did that. And the sea covered them. And the people of Israel in Exodus 15, they're dancing and celebrating and singing the song of Moses, the horse and the rider. They were crashed on by the sea. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. You'd think that would have done it. Ten plagues. He opens the sea. He closes it on the Egyptian army. Now they're not going to be whiny anymore, right? Wrong. This was just the beginning. In Exodus 15, look at verse 22. Moses led Israel, 15:22, from the Red Sea, and they went out to the wilderness of Shur. The word Shur literally means a wall or a line of fortress. So at Shur, they surely hit the wall. Yeah. And they went three days into the, in the wilderness and found no water. Now, let me ask you a question. With all the miracles, freed from Egyptian bondage, if you didn't have water for three days, would you start whining? I think we all would have to confess. You know, if I don't have my bottle of water for an hour, I'm like, what's going on? Well, they could not find water. Three days into the wilderness, and when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses saying, what shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree and he threw it into the waters and the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statute and a regulation. And there, what did God do? He tested them. And he said, if you will give earnest heed to the voice, think of the wilderness as a place of the word, to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you which I've put on the Egyptian. Egyptians, for I the Lord am your, what? I'm your healer, that's Jehovah Rapha. Then they came to Elam, it literally means palms, where there were 12 springs of waters, makes me think of the 12 tribes of Israel, and 70 date palms, and they camped there beside the waters. Next, they head to what's called the wilderness of sin. Let's skip down Exodus 16, verse 1. Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month. They've been out of Egypt for one month, after their departure from the land of Egypt, very specific. And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meats, when we ate bread to the full, we had steak and we had French bread. We had baguettes. We carried them under our arms. We sat by pots of meat every now and then. Yeah, we got smacked by the taskmaster, but hey, we had steak for dinner. This place, well, we don't have steak. 
There's no double doubles out here <laughs> with grilled onions. What are we going to do now? Are you kidding me? Is this what it's come to? That they don't have meat to eat? That they don't have bread? So they said, the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died? You brought us into the wilderness, end of verse 3, to kill the whole assembly with hunger. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may do what? Test them, whether they will walk in my instruction. That's the Hebrew word Torah. Whether they will keep my Torah. Look at verse 9. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumblings. Did you know that God hears even when you grumble under your breath? He hears that. He can interpret mumbling and grumbling. He hears it all. And it came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I have heard the grumbling of the, grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them saying, at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it came about at evening that quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. How many times in our lives have we whined and God provides and we go, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. I did it again. How are we going to get past this one? What are we going to do now? And the Lord shows up and he takes care of your need. You're all sitting here today because the Lord has been faithful. But we're just like the children of Israel. When the layer of dew evaporated 14, behold, on the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine flake thing, fine as the frost on the ground. And the sons of Israel saw it, and they said to one another, this is a cardinal sin, by the way, you never say this, especially when your mother-in-law has cooked something for you. Never say these three words. What is it? (laughs) Don't do that. If you say it, duck after you say it. For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Now Jesus took this image of manna from heaven and he said, I am the bread of what? Of life. And he talked about that the pictures of the Old Testament, miraculous water, miraculous bread coming from heaven, were spiritual pictures provisions that God wants us to understand, that life is more than just what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Skip down to verse 31, Exodus 16. And the house of Israel named it manna. Literally, that means, what is it? And by the way, the Bible says in verse 35 that they ate manna for 40 years. So for 40 years, they didn't know what they were going to have for dinner because they ate manna. What is it? That's supposed to be a joke. Anyway, maybe. A... And we, you ever have this exchange with a friend or a family member? What do you want to have for dinner? I don't know. What do you want to have? I don't know. What do you want to have? You choose. And then they choose. You go, nah. I don't. Nah. <laughs> I thought you told me to choose. Yeah, but it was within a limitation of three top picks that I wanted you to choose from. 
what are we having for dinner? I don't know. They always knew. It was, what is it? <laughs> anyway. Exodus 19. There's some humor in there somewhere, right? In the third month, verse 1, Exodus 19. Three months after they left Egypt. The sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt on the very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. And Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, Tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings. I brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now, if you just flip to Exodus 20, I think most of you know that's where the Ten Commandments are given. Moses goes up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. He doesn't eat anything. Jesus repeats this in Mark chapter 1. And it doesn't take long before the children of Israel are doing what? Down below. Moses getting the top 10 up above. The word. The desert is the place of the word. And what's Israel doing down below? They've made a what? A golden calf, which they probably learned about in Egypt. And they are dancing around it and worshiping it. And a Bible passage makes mention that they, they gave a feast to Yahweh or to the Lord, but they were trying to mix pagan worship. And they even said to this this idol, they said, this is the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Can you imagine being God? You've descended upon Sinai in fire and smoke, lightning flashes, holiness. Angels are up there on top of the mountain. You're given Moses your law. You've written it with the finger of the living God. And it doesn't take long down below. There they are. They're dancing around the golden calf, proclaiming that it's their God. They say, this Moses, uh, as for him, uh, we don't know. He walked into a fire. People usually don't come out when they do that kind of thing. And they're sinning up a storm. And God, in a funny passage, says, your people that you brought out of the land of Egypt, <laughs> your kid, you know, your kid, you say to your spouse when they're doing something wrong. Anyway, and all of it is summed up in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is the end of the wilderness wanderings now, Deuteronomy chapter 8. The place of the word, the wilderness, the place of testing, the place of perfecting, the place where everything is stripped away, the midbar, the divine purpose where God wants to show you that he can be everything to you spiritually, emotionally, physically, and otherwise. He says these words, Deuteronomy 8 verse 1. All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do. That you may live and multiply, Deuteronomy 8.1, and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Did God want to really know what was in their heart? Well, you could say that's human language to describe the situation, but I think the wilderness reveals my heart to me more than God need, needing to know my heart in the wilderness. The wilderness often shows me what I'm made of. And sometimes, just to be perfectly candid, it's not pretty what I see in me.
I realize how spoiled I can be. You know, many of you know I went on a missions trip some years back to Nepal. And I was on the streets of Calcutta. And I was in India. And I saw utter poverty. And you come back to the United States. And you look at everybody. And, you know, you've had a spiritual experience there. So you look at everybody. And you're selfish, terrible. Clocks in the fast food places. And jeez, you got And it doesn't take but about a week. And you're right back there where you were before. But you say to yourself in India, I'll never be that way again. You start making proclamations and, and it doesn't take long. You're right back in the saddle where you want everything at your beck and call. You don't realize how many blessings that you have. He humbled you. He let you be hungry. Verse 3, Deuteronomy 8. He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What's interesting is that when Jesus goes into the wilderness and he's being tempted by Satan, one of the temptations after he's been fasting is the devil says, if you're the son of God or since you're the son of God, back to Mark. Actually, go to Hosea for a second. Hosea. So uh, you're going to pass up Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Go to chapter 10. Here's the point. They just didn't get it. They just didn't understand the blessing that was there. How quickly we forget. How quickly we forget the deliverance that God has brought us. And, and you know, some of you have been Christians for decades and we can get in this mode where we just don't remember all that God has led us out of. This is uh, Hosea 10. Look at verse 12. God says, sow with a view to righteousness, reap in accordance with kindness, break up your fallow ground, for it's time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness on you. You have plowed wickedness, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your way, in your numerous warriors. Therefore, a tumult will arise among your people and all your fortresses will be destroyed and Shalman destroyed as Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, when mothers were dashed in pieces with their children, thus it will be done to you at Bethel because of your great wickedness. At dawn, the king of Israel will be completely cut off. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. This is applied to Jesus in Matthew 2.15. The, the more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love. And it became to them, I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. And I bent down and fed them. Now, if you go uh, one more passage in Hosea chapter 13. Hosea 13, look at verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He exalted himself in Israel. But through Baal, he did wrong and died. And now, Hosea 13, 2, they sin more and more. Make for themselves molten images, idols skillfully made from their silver, all of them the work of a craftsman. They say of them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore, they will be like the morning cloud, like dew which soon disappears, like chaff which is blown away from the threshing floor, and like smoke from a chimney. Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, 
And you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, says the Lord, they forgot me. Back to Mark. This is always a danger for the people of God. This is a danger for America. This morning, I was listening to Dr. J. Vernon McGee. I would imagine that the sermon that was aired this morning was from about 30 years ago. He was talking about a time of testing coming to this country. I looked at my wife and I said, do you know that he's probably preaching that message about 30 years ago? She went, really? I said, really? I said, if J. Vernon McGee was saying that about the U.S. 30 years ago, how prepared do you think we need to be now? How prepared is the church in America for a wilderness experience? How prepared am I for a wilderness experience? I think you all realize what's happening on the landscape around us right now. And here comes the prophet, and the prophet comes baptizing. And he's saying to people, get ready. Jesus is coming. It's time to break up the fallowed ground. It's time to find an oasis in the desert. And when Jesus speaks of John, he says, what did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind. What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothes are in king's palaces. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who's more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And it was in the wilderness, if you check Luke 3, verses 1 through 3, that the word of God came to John. And John had a mission. His dress was like almost in defiance to the religious leaders of the day. And he began to preach. He appeared, Mark 1.4, in the wilderness. The Greek word for wilderness, wilderness is eramos. It speaks of a lonely place. It can also speak of abandonment or a person who's been forsaken. Maybe that's how you feel. Maybe you feel like you're in a personal wilderness. Well, God can meet you there. And John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. Matthew 3, 1 and 2, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance means do a U-turn. Repentance means you're going the wrong way. Start, turn around and go the opposite direction. I like to come to the end of every year and look back and reflect upon a year. This is our last Sunday service for 2015, and God has done mighty miracles in our midst. But I like to look back at a year and ask myself some personal questions like, has my walk with Jesus Christ progressed? I heard Marv Rosenthal one time say, uh, uh, another teacher, he said, look, I, I like to come to the end of every year, December 31st, and look back and say, I'm not the man that I want to be yet but I'm certainly not the man that I used to be. And if you can come to the end of every year, you know you're making progress if you can say those words. Look, none of us have arrived. We all realize that. But hopefully you're not who you used to be and hopefully you have a plan for 2016 to run this race with endurance and draw close to the Lord. Some of you have post-Christmas celebration depression right now. Part of that is all the sweets that you ate over the holidays. 
Do you notice I said you ate them? I didn't eat any of them. No, you guys brought them all to the church office. And of course, I was forced to partake in all of these sweets. I know they were given in love. You didn't make me reach to, into the caramel corn. I did that to myself. I understand that. Now I'm in the wilderness. I'm just kidding. Anyway, <laughs> in all the country of Judea, notice the response to John. Mark 1.5 was going out to him. All the people of Jerusalem. Notice it says all twice. All Judea in the south. All Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan. Confessing their sins. Some scholars I have read say estimates are that about 300,000 people came to John at the Jordan River. 300,000 people. Can you imagine baptizing 300,000 people? Well, people were confessing their sins. I don't know if this came of their own accord, but I know John was a radical preacher and he wanted to make sure people knew what they were doing. Maybe he, he would say to them, why are you being baptized right now? I, 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 I'm sorry, John. <laughs> what do you need to confess? And people were confessing their sins, their shortcomings in the wilderness, and they were going into the waters of baptism. By the way, to my knowledge, the, the only people that were regularly baptized were Gentile converts who were converting into Judaism. It was very irregular for Jewish people to be baptized. There were some ceremonial washings, but other than that, the ones who got baptized were Gentiles becoming Jewish. Now, John is doing something very radical, very unique. He's baptizing Jewish people. So the Pharisees came out, right? And they're, who knows what their motive was, but they were checking him out. And John just looked up at them. He had read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. <laughs> because he said to them, You brood of vipers! <laughs> Who warned you to flee from the wrath of, to come? The axe is already at the root. Here's a way to translate that. The axe is at the tree and you're about to go down, baby. You better repent. I told you, he read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. He didn't care. He said, look, I'm warning you. You better repent or you're going to get cut down. He's going to come with his winnowing fork, Luke 3.17, and he's going to burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. Woo! Yeah. Preach it, John. Yeah. Tell them. And people were coming and getting baptized one after the other, confessing their sins. Lord, I've done wrong. Lord, I'm sorry. And this picture of the wilderness emerges. And God has been silent for about 400 years. John is the last of the Old Testament prophets, scholars like to say. He prepares the way of the Lord. He's telling them, get ready, because something radical is going to happen, something that you can't even imagine. He's coming. And John prepares the way, and he's, the picture is he's getting all the rough places out. He's smoothing the edges. His baptism was preparatory. This is important for theology. John's baptism was external, but it was a heart preparation. It was to get people ready to meet the Messiah. Could they have known he was right on the landscape? Could they have known he was about to walk up to the Jordan River and be baptized by John the Baptist? See, John, verse 6, was clothed with camel's hair. Not a very comfortable garment, by the way. Maybe a coarse garment for a coarse message. He wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet consisted of that new cereal. You've all heard of it. It's a uh, called locust and wild honey cereal. Have you ever tried that before? So he'd grab a locust. My grandfather used to do this. My Italian grandpa used to grab snails off of our back wall. 
he would boil them and eat them. If you put spaghetti sauce on anything, it'll taste pretty good. He said, it's a good, it's a good. So, so he'd have a locust. You, know. you guys have watched some of those wilderness shows. But he'd, he'd go over to the beehive and probably dip the head of the locust in the beehive. Yeah. That's Sean's diet, man. You see, the whole wilderness picture is emerging, isn't it? John's in the wilderness calling Israel back to the place where they failed, saying to them, there's hope. There's one coming. He is glorious. He is mighty. He was preaching, saying, seven, after me one is coming. He's mightier than I. I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. Uh, When you were in a rabbi relationship as a disciple, They said, you could really make your disciple do just about anything, but don't make him untie the thong of your sandals. Not even the lowest slave, you know, should really be, at least not even a disciple should be doing that. Lowest, lowly slaves did do that. And he says, look, I can't even untie his shoes, this one that is coming. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's going to saturate your life with the Spirit. He's the distributor of life. He distributes the power of the Holy Spirit. The element that he uses is not water. He baptizes with the power of the Spirit. And it came about in this poignant moment in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Everybody else was coming from Judea and Jerusalem. The focal point now from the north, he comes and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, there are other gospel writers that say that when Jesus came, John said to him, you want me to baptize you? I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus said, let this be done that we may fulfill all righteousness. I'm going to give you a a word picture. This is something that struck me. And here's what it would be like. Imagine that I was up here preaching and I noticed that Jesus snuck into the back of the sanctuary. And let's say I preached a whole message and I was preaching about confession and repentance and getting right with God and I gave an altar call. And I looked and Jesus Christ began to come to the front of the church to respond to my altar call. And let's say that I told people that when you come forward, I'm going to walk down from this platform and I'm going to meet you down here and I'm going to pray for you so that you can get your life right. And imagine that I walked to the front and I looked at Jesus in the eyes. What would I say to Jesus if he responded to my altar call? I would say, I need to respond to your altar call. And you come to me. That's what happened at the Jordan. And the question that you must ask is why? Why did he come to John? He said that we might fulfill all righteousness, but there's something deeper. And here's the picture. Track with me. This is so important. The reason that Jesus comes to the Jordan to be baptized by John is that he is identifying with all of us. He is now going to correct the mistakes that were made in the wilderness. He's coming as the true Israelite, the true son, the one who will redeem. And he's coming forward to say, I'm going to do what they failed to do. And he's going to, He's going to be treated on the cross like he committed all of our sins. And at the Jordan, he's coming forward for baptism as though he needed it, though he did not. You understand? This is the theology that's going on here. This is the wilderness picture. This is the place of the word. This is where the Holy One that was pained by Israel in the desert now comes to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. This is the gospel. 
And John is flabbergasted. He doesn't even know how to quite make sense of all of this, but he's going to obey. And he baptized him. And immediately, verse 10, coming up out of the water, he, Jesus, saw the heavens opening. And John tells us in, his, uh, in John's gospel that uh, John the Baptist saw this as well. He saw the heavens opening. If you have an NIV, it says, heaven being torn open and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, Thou art my beloved Son, in Thee I am well pleased. I would venture to say that that didn't happen when anybody else was being baptized. But when Jesus went into the water, and Luke tells us he was praying during this time of baptism, that he, when he came up out of the water, the heavens opened, and this is picturesque of Isaiah 64, 1, when it says, Oh, that you would part the heavens and come down, O Lord. Many uh, Bible teachers have said Isaiah 64, 1 is pictured here, but it's also a picture of a desire for revival. Oh, Lord, that you would part the heavens and come down. Do you ever just pray that way? You ever look at our world and just say, Oh, Lord, that you would just part the heavens and come down. And you know what God says in response to that? I have, and I'm going to do it again. Amen? He's coming again. And the current heavens and earth will roll away like a scroll. He's coming again. And now John has this moment, and heaven, the Father, is declaring that Jesus is his beloved son. I think every dad whether you have sons or daughters, you should say it in front of people. You are my beloved child. I'm proud of you. That's a sub-application point. But here the Father gives testimony. And at the Jordan River is the three members of the Trinity. The Father speaking from heaven, the Spirit descending like a dove, Jesus, the incarnated Son. By the way, Jesus is not throwing his voice. Thou art my beloved Son. and He's not being a ventriloquist. I did not want to do that irreverently, but I'm trying to make the point. Here's the point. This is the three distinct members of the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Think of it this way. One being, three centers of consciousness. One being, three personas. Not persons, personas. Latin means personalities. Three distinct persons. Here at his baptism, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the Spirit descends upon him like a dove. It became an image used by the church. Some rabbis used to say that the dove even represented Israel as a community. And God, uh, but the, the picture here is definitely that of a dove. And God, the Spirit, descends upon God, the Son, as a dove. And this institutes now the beginning of his ministry. If you needed to know who the Messiah is, you just got it. Prophets foretold it. Jewish genealogy foretold it. Heaven planned it. Angels sang. We, we've been looking at Christmas. And now, just in case you missed it, the heavens open, and he says, that's my son. That's the Messiah. Listen to him. Do what he says. And he's empowered right here now by the Holy Spirit, and this begins his three, three-and-a-half-year public ministry. The descent of the Spirit may bring a memory of Genesis 1-2 when the Spirit is hovering over the waters at creation. Uh, it may speak of, in, in other ways, there's some different takes on it, but here's the, the point. The power of God's Spirit is upon him, and he has now gone to preach good tidings to the poor, set captives free, 
He went about doing good. We'll sum it up here and we'll come back to these verses in the next message. And immediately, now Mark's gospel is fast moving. Not a lot of details given, but notice the connection. Immediately, Mark 1.12, the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts. And the angels, incredibly, were ministering to him. He had come to represent the perfect Israelite. He had come for the whole world. He came into the place where Israel failed. Because when Israel was in the desert, the devil got the upper hand. The devil tried to say to them, Do you see what he doesn't give you out here? Oh yeah, you've been set free from Egypt, but you don't have steak anymore. Remember how you used to, you used to grill it with green peppers and onions? You remember? Leeks? You had them? Now you don't have them anymore. And sometimes as a believer, you go, yeah, that's right. I, yeah, I was in slavery, but, but <laughs> you see how silly it sounds? And the devil whispers in our ear, think of what you don't have anymore. And we begin to grumble and complain. And God says, uh, do you remember where you were when you were by the pots of meat? You were doing a mud dance for the Pharaoh. You're building his pyramids for him. And you're crying out to me, set me free, Lord. But then when you got out in the desert, you didn't like the way things went all the time. I got news for you. I'm God, you're not. Maybe that's where we need to park for a while, right? I'm God, let me do what I'm going to do. And so they wandered in the wilderness, and they wandered, and they complained. And that generation, sadly, and this is detailed in Hebrews chapter 3, was laid low in the desert for one reason. This is the final point. One word. You know what the word is? Unbelief. They simply wouldn't believe. And you know, when you boil down the Christian life, as much as we could talk about theology and you know, aspects of walking in the Spirit, your whole Christian life is going to depend on how much you're willing to trust in God. That's it. It's a walk by faith, not by sight. And that's hard. So God takes us out into the desert. Would you bow your head and heart with me? Father, thank you for taking us out into the wilderness so we might realize that we don't live by bread alone. We live by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. Forgive the church, not only in America and the world, for downplaying the value of your word. Forgive us, Lord, for sometimes watering down the word not realizing how powerful it is, how substantive it is, how it meets us in wilderness places and makes us more like our God. Lord, let us be people of the word as uh, this new year commences. Let us be people of the book, not because we're in love with the book per se, but the God who is revealed in the Bible. Let us realize how important that substance for the soul is, that nourishment We know that as we are going to look at the temptation next time we're together, you, when the devil came at you, you quoted the book. It is written. It is written. And in the wilderness, you overcame. 
Help us to overcome our wilderness experiences, Lord. Lead us into your promises. Let us walk by faith and not by sight. Dig up the fallow ground in our hearts, Lord, where we oftentimes focus and fall short. May 2016 be a a time of flourishing faith in the hearts of the folks that are here. May you bless them. May you keep them. May you strengthen them. And with your heart and head bowed, if you've not met Jesus, man, you've got to start right there. You've got to let him shape your life and set you free and take you to those places where he can make you what he's called you to be. So if you want to do that, just cry out to him right now. It's something like this. Jesus, save me. Cry out right now, out loud if it's you. Save me, Lord. I confess I'm a sinner. I confess that I've broken your laws. I have lied. I have lusted in my heart. I have put other gods before you. I've taken your name in vain. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you that Jesus came and did for me what I could not do for myself. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. Say it to him if it's you. He rose from the dead, and I trust in you, Lord. Lead me and guide me. Lord, for those who are crying out, may you lead us to oasis in the desert and Gettys, places where there's unexpected water and life. I pray for that soul that might, maybe it didn't have such a great holiday or maybe there's some struggles going on that you'll provide that oasis in the desert. Living waters instead of broken cisterns that they would drink from your fountain and find life afresh. Let your living waters just flow over us, Lord. Refill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can have your eyes and your heart for what's ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen.